You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. We're about to open the Word of God. Uh, We believe uh, that this was not just a human book, that this is a book that God wrote, that he breathed out, that he inspired human authors to write, uh, but these are his words. And so we're going to open God's word. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. It's about uh, most of the way through your Bible. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you'll look for a big four and then we're going to be in verses 24 and 25 today. So it's a little 24 and a little 25. Um, if, you, if you need a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible that's yours that you can call your own, just take that one with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, you're not stealing. We're giving it to you. And, uh, and if you are online, we're so glad that you're joining us. There, in the video description underneath, there is a link to YouVersion, which has the text there right in front of you. It also has the sermon notes. Um, but we are, we are so glad that you joined us for this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, this is uh, a very, very important day of the year to us because we celebrate, as you just celebrated with us, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And that is something that we absolutely believe. And this is a very special day to us, but at the same time, like it's, it's just kind of another Sunday, right? Because we believe that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our lives and shapes the way that we live. And so in some sense, this is a very special day. And in some sense, this is every day. And so with your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4, uh, I want you. I want to just start us out thinking here uh, about uh, injustice. So on December twenty third, uh, nineteen ninety one. By the way, the the PowerPoint today is a little wacky. Uh, I apologize for that. I apologize that it's so small in the corner, but you'll live. Um, on December twenty third, uh, nineteen ninety one, uh, a fire took the life of Cameron Todd Willingham's three young daughters. And he was asleep in the home at the time. But by the next Christmas, he had been sentenced to death, accused of starting that fire intentionally. Willingham repeatedly argued his innocence over the next several years, 13 years actually. Uh, The arson was, the investigation was completely continually called into question uh, by leading experts at the time. But in 2004, his execution was carried out. And then after the execution, uh, even more evidence mounted. Uh, New scientific standards were established for arson investigations. And all of these things strongly suggested that the original investigation was absolutely faulty, and the state of Texas had executed an innocent man. We would call that injustice. 
Consider now a different case. In 2008, the, the nation watched as Casey Anthony was tried for killing her daughter, Kaylee. Perhaps you remember it in the news. The evidence presented against her towered high and seemed indisputable. Uh, the judge, even 10 years later, said that he assumed that she would have been found guilty and that he himself thought she was guilty. Uh, the prosecution had made a fairly solid case, but still a jury found her not guilty. And I'm not here to comment on the details of that case. Obviously, it's easy to watch from outside, but many, including those closest to the situation, mourned what they believed to be a massive, massive miscarriage of justice. And I don't know about you, but Whenever I hear any story that's like that, I, I start to get angry. Like, like the blood just starts to boil up with inside me. And, and uh, I have a really strong internal justice meter. Like, like my mom used to say that, that my motto over my life was truth and justice for all. Like ever since I was a little kid, it was just like, truth and justice, come on. And uh, I, I hate the idea of a guilty person being declared innocent. And, and I hate the idea of an innocent person paying the penalty for a crime that they did not commit. And I want to see people pay for their crimes that they did commit. And I, I don't want to see people pay for crimes that they didn't commit. You with me on that? Yeah, right. Like, like, like I think most people would agree these things are tragically unjust. Unjust. And the closer we are to a situation like that, uh, say one of those people, one of the victims was in our own family or, or, or somebody who was falsely accused was in our own family, the greater we're going to feel that injustice. Even if it's like a, a smaller thing. Imagine like just getting a speeding ticket that you don't think that you deserved. It, it, it's going to make you frustrated and Maybe feel a little disillusioned or, or confused. But I wonder how many of us have ever had those types of feelings about Good Friday and Easter. We've spent quite a bit of time over the last week, if you've been with us, proving that we are all guilty before God in our sin. And the Bible is very clear, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, that our sin deserves death. It deserves eternal separation from God in hell. If you were with us last Sunday, we looked at what sin deserves. It deserves God's righteous anger. It deserves gory death. If you were with us on Good Friday, we looked at the reality that the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. And we looked at the sham trial that led to Jesus' immediate execution. And we saw that the guilty Barabbas was set free and the innocent Jesus was given the death sentence. We said that we are Barabbas. And Jesus stood in our place for our sin. And typically at that point, we'd be crying foul. Right? Right? 
Like, like, don't let the innocent die for the guilty. That's unjust. But when we're the guilty, we hesitate to call that into question, don't we? It's almost like we just kind of hope that God's not going to notice the injustice of it all. Kind of just wonder, how does that work? I don't know. I guess I'm getting off free. And the question that we should be asking is, how can God place the cost of his wrath toward our sin upon a perfectly innocent Jesus and declare us, the guilty sinners, innocent? How can he do that and still be a just God? Have you ever asked that question? If not, you should. You should. You should wrestle with things like that. It's the way that we come to understand the infinite riches of the grace of God toward us in Christ Jesus. It's the way that we understand the purposes of his mercy. And so it's the question that we're going to explore today. How can God place the wrath toward sin upon Jesus, declare us innocent, and still be just? The answer to that question is the life-altering reality of of Easter. That God rose Jesus from the dead. The resurrection, the empty tomb, is our only hope as guilty sinners, to be declared innocent before a holy, righteous God. And so that's what we're going to see in Romans 4, 24 and 25 today. Uh, Rest all of your faith on God who declares guilty sinners innocent through Christ's resurrection. Rest all of your faith on God who declares guilty sinners innocent through Christ's resurrection. Let me just give you a little bit of context in the book of Romans before we read these verses. So the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Romans as a letter to the church in Rome. It was a group of believers in Jesus whom he had never met, but he hoped to meet actually very soon. And so he was planning a trip, and he was going to use Rome as kind of a a, a stepping stone to get to Spain. And he wanted their support. He wanted to come and meet them and have this great time of fellowship with them. But he wanted, before he got there, to clarify his gospel message. Because there was some confusion about it. In a lot of churches in the Roman world, uh, the Jews saw the gospel and Christianity as an extension of their Judaism. Jesus was their Savior. He was Israel's Messiah. And therefore, in order to be part of the church, they wanted Gentiles, non-Jews, to keep the Jewish law. What we read about in the Old Testament, especially the first five books. They wanted non-Jews to get circumcised because that was the mark of God's covenant with Israel. They wanted them to observe Jewish holy days and festivals. And all around, they wanted non-Jews to live Jewishly 
if they were going to come and worship their Jewish Savior King. But Paul said, no, 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 that undercuts the whole message that I'm preaching. That undercuts the gospel. The gospel is, about, is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. God sent Jesus because we could not be good enough. We could not live up to his standards in our sin. And, and if you have to keep the law in order to be in right standing with God, then nobody's going to be saved. Not Jews, not Greeks, not Americans, no one, no one. Salvation, having a right relationship with God, comes through faith in the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone. And so he writes the book of Romans as a legal defense of the gospel. He is anticipating all throughout the prosecution's questions. And so chapters 1 through 8 of Romans lays out why the gospel is true and essential to our lives. The later chapters lay out the practical ways that we live out of that truth. Ultimately, Paul is defending why the events of Good Friday in Easter matter. He's explaining what God is doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus and how that changes everything. Chapters 1 to 3 then describe how everyone falls short of God's standard. That was, is part of what we looked at on Friday night that we tend to measure ourselves against other people or against our own standards. But if we really understand God, no one is righteous like he is righteous. No one is good like he is good. And so we fall massively short. And at the end of chapter 3, he transitions then to show how we can be declared innocent even though we have been found guilty of sin that deserves death. How does that happen? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that word justified throughout our sermon today, but it means to be declared righteous. It's not about us being righteous on our own. It's about God declaring us righteous. It's about us receiving Christ's righteousness because he was innocent. And at that point, someone might say, but, but that's not right. That's not fair. How can someone be declared righteous simply because they believe Jesus died in their place? And so in chapter 4, Paul says, uh, because that's the way it always was. Because that's the way that God has been working since the beginning. That's the way he created things to work. That through faith, righteousness is counted to people. In chapter 4 then, Paul says that he's been doing this all along and he gives Abraham, the, the Old Testament patriarch, who's like all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, as the primary example. And he goes on to describe Abraham's faith in God. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he wraps up this section like this. Now look down in your Bibles at Romans 4, 24 and 25. 
it, its righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just two verses today. That, that's what we're going to dwell on. We're going to allow them to slow cook in our hearts until we are captivated by them. We're going to taste and savor and slowly eat the meat that is here today. And so let's just read it again. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Big idea again, rest all your faith on God who declares guilty sinners innocent through Christ's resurrection. What what does it mean to rest all your faith on God? What does it mean to believe in God? A lot of people say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus, but, but they mean that they believe that he existed. Kind of like they believe in Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Right? Like, I believe that he existed. I believe that he did some good things. But that's not what the Bible means when it says believe in God or believe in Jesus. And so what or how must we believe in order to be declared innocent even though we've been found guilty of our sin? That is an incredibly important question. If you want to find true life, if you want to find the meaning of life, the reason why you were created, that is the most important question that you could ever ask. How can I be declared innocent when I am guilty before my creator? And how can my creator, God, be just in declaring me innocent? That's what we're going to dig out of these two verses. Rest all your faith on God who, first of all, raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So if we're going to receive God's declaration of innocent over our lives, we have to first believe that God actually raised Jesus from the dead. It puts Easter right at the center of importance. That his resurrection was a statement that he is Lord. That he is Lord. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Now, this might strike you as odd that that someone else is described as raising Jesus from the dead. We often say, Jesus rose from the dead. And it's not wrong to say that. Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So it's not wrong to say Jesus rose from the dead. But more often, the Bible actually says that God the Father raised him from the dead and that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Let me just give you two examples. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him 
who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so it seems most often that the Father and the Spirit are described as raising Jesus from the dead when the resurrection is being used to discuss the power by which he was raised. It's describing the power of the resurrection. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the power, all have the authority, and all have the desire for Jesus to come out of that tomb. The resurrection is God declaring that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God whom he claimed to be. And Romans 4.24 is telling us that in order for the righteousness of Jesus to be credited to us, we must put our faith down on that fact. But before we can believe that the resurrection is God declaring Jesus is Lord, we need to believe first that the resurrection is historical fact in the first place. In the year 30 AD, Jesus really died. He really was buried. He was buried Friday before sundown. He spent the whole day in the grave Saturday. Spent the whole night Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, he walked out of his tomb The ground shook, the soldiers ran, and the angel rolled the stone away, and then Jesus walked out alive. Now, now if that's not true, you shouldn't even bother sitting here today. We are massively wasting our time if we don't believe that. Go eat a nice breakfast, find some hidden eggs with candy in them, and have some fun with your family. Much better use of your time if that's not true. But if it is true, It changes much more than just today. It changes your whole life because it proves this fact that Jesus is Lord. And you have every reason to believe that it is true. Let me just give you five quick reasons, okay? Five quick reasons why we can believe that Jesus is Lord. First of all, Jesus was verified dead. Jesus was verified dead. So the Romans didn't want any surprises, right? And so before they took anybody off of a cross, they made sure they were dead. That was the the centurion that was there. That was his main job. He was a professional at making sure we're dead. And so the Bible even describes that they struck him with a spear in the side and blood and water flowed. That's a sure sign that he is dead. A Roman centurion who had no vested interest in Jesus, who would have seen thousands and thousands of crucifixions, signed off on it. Second, Roman soldiers guarded his body. Again, Romans want no surprises, right? Jews want no surprises. So they're afraid that someone's going to come steal this body because Jesus is going to, because Jesus said he would rise again. And so they put their Roman centurion killing machines in front of the tomb. And they roll a heavy, heavy stone in the way so that nobody's getting to this guy. Those killing machines would lose their life. Like, you're not going to pay them off. They're going to lose their life if something happens to this body. Third, Jesus' enemies 
acknowledged the empty tomb. They knew it was empty. And Matthew says that they came up with this story that someone stole it. Let's just try to disseminate the information. But the story quickly flashed out. And we know it wasn't true because the Roman soldiers in point number two, right? Like they would have stopped the story because their lives are on the line on that one. Fourth, his disciples died giving witness to the resurrection. They, they were eyewitnesses. They saw the risen body of Jesus. They put their hands in his wounds. And they died giving testimony to that. So during the trial, the disciples are nowhere to be found. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, they're kind of scattered, watching from a distance. After the resurrection, though, they are willing to die to say that it was true. You don't do that for a guy who you believed just died. You don't do that. Fifth, the church was born out of that. And the central message of the apostles upon which the church was built was that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you look at all of the gospel testimonies in the book of Acts, it is the central message of the apostles that Jesus raised from the dead. The first century believers took this testimony to the heart even though it cost them everything and they gained virtually nothing by it. There was no earthly benefit to believing this. And yet the church exploded in growth almost overnight across the entire Roman Empire. The church started meeting on Sunday mornings instead of the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, because their foundational belief was that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And we've been meeting on Sunday mornings for 2,000 years since. If that was a fabrication, boy, did it go a long way. Boy, did it get out of hand. But it's not. We know that it was the power of the resurrected Jesus because it brings dead people to life in every generation, and it's still happening today. It could even happen for you. And you can have every reason to believe today that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. And the question then is, what difference does it make? Why is it worth spending a special holiday every year to remember this? Why get dressed up and go to church? Why eat ham? Why do any of it? Why does it matter? Well, if it only matters that much, then it doesn't really matter at all. If it only matters one day a year, it doesn't really matter at all. But it matters so much more than that. So much more. If God rose Jesus from the dead, then it means that Jesus is Lord. And so sometimes we take a story like this, like it's old news. Like, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, now where's the chocolate eggs? But I want you to imagine that this happened today. Today, so like your teacher, whoever that might be, your, your, your friend, the, the one who you thought was like the next big thing, has now been defeated by the government working in collusion with 
some religious leaders. Okay, just put your, put your mind there. Go there, okay? You watched his life. He was such a good man. You never saw him commit even the tiniest sin. Not only that, he had the power to heal people. You wouldn't believe it except that you saw it with your own eyes that that he cast demons out of some people that were possessed. And when he taught, oh, when he taught, people hung on his every word. But on Friday, just two days ago, he died. Not just that, any death, like the death penalty. This wasn't just a bad dream that you had the night before. It had been setting in on Friday night and on Saturday and Saturday night. Even still, his body is lying in a tomb this morning. Or so you thought. But this morning, some of your friends, some, some women who were following him with you, went down to to finish up the embalming. And all of a sudden, you got a a text message from one of them. Put that up, Keith. You get this text message. Tomb empty, saw angel, he is risen. What emotions are you feeling in that moment? That's cool. Let me check Facebook. Oh, oh, that's cool. Now where's the, the ham dinner? Oh, that's cool. Now selfie with my family. The resurrection is historical fact, which makes it a spiritual phenomenon of unmatched proportions. Someone who has authority over death is most certainly Lord over all. God raised Jesus from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then we must believe that he is Lord, which changes everything about our lives. So we put down our faith on Jesus as Lord, which means that we devote ourselves to him. We devote our lives to him. If he is Lord, that means we go where he goes. We follow where he leads. When he says jump, we say, how high? We do what he says. We love who he loves. And we tell everybody about the life that they can have in Jesus. We tell everyone about the life that we have found. And then we gather with his people, other people who have been changed in the same way. And we we come back together week after week on Sundays because that's when he rose. Not not perfectly. We We don't do any of this perfectly, but we do it increasingly because he's changing us from the inside out. That's what it looks like to rest all of your faith on God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. But maybe you're still thinking, okay, so God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is Lord, but 
I'm a pretty good person. If Jesus is Lord, he probably likes me a lot. Or you could be thinking the opposite. Man, I've done way too many bad things. If he's Lord, there's no way he's going to accept me. If you've ever had either of those thoughts, you need to believe not only that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, but also that God delivered Jesus, our Lord, to bear our sin. He delivered Jesus, our Lord, to bear our sin. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. Now, that word delivered up is very interesting. If something is, is delivered, it generally requires five things. You'd be like, how in the world are you going to get five things out of the word delivered? But think about it. Think about it with me, okay? Uh, first of all, it, it requires the thing being delivered, right? The, the package being delivered. It, it requires uh, a sender. It requires a carrier to deliver it. Requires a destination to where it's being delivered. And it requires a reason why it's being delivered. And so let's just think deeply about this word delivered, okay? Think with me. So if I have an Amazon package that's delivered to me, the package, of course, is the thing being delivered. The seller is the sender of the package. The driver is the carrier. And the destination is my house. And so in this delivery in Romans 4.25, obviously, Jesus is the one being delivered. But what about the other three parts? What about the other three parts and four parts? Who's delivering him? How, how is he being delivered? What is the destination? Is Jesus delivered by Satan? By Judas? By someone else? Who, who's the sender? Well, the book of Romans actually answers that question for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, so we're talking about God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That word gave him up is the same word that's translated deliver in Romans 4.25. So God the Father delivered up God the Son for us all. Put that in the category of sender. Now let me just say something really quickly. Uh, don't think that God did this against Jesus' will. Okay? It's not like God the Father is the wrathful one and Jesus is the loving, kind one. Now, they were together in this, right? They are perfectly one, perfectly one will. And the Bible says that Jesus laid his life down willingly and took up the cross. And so he was a willing vessel being delivered. But God the Father is the sender. Jesus is the one being delivered. Who carried him? Who carried him? Where, where is he going? And so if the, we, we see this word delivered used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to Judas, the chief priests, and the scribes and to Pilate even, delivering Jesus. And so you can think of them as the Amazon carrier. 
They're, they're getting Jesus from point A to point B, but the will is of the Father. They were not the ultimate carriers. They're the means by which God is accomplishing his will. And that doesn't mean that they're innocent in the whole matter. In God's providence, he turned their own willful, sinful choices into a channel for his ultimate plan. That is how awesome our God is. And so where were they delivering him to? Where was God sending him? God was sending him into death itself. Into physical torment. Into spiritual anguish. Into all of the consequences of our sin. Now here's the last question that we need to ask. Why? Why was God doing that? So when I order my Amazon package, I have a reason, right? Like maybe it's a birthday present for someone. Maybe it's beard balm to tame my mane. But why did God the Father deliver Jesus, sending him with such evil carriers to the place of pain and anguish? And here's the answer that Paul gives in verse 25. For our trespasses. For our trespasses. That includes me, that includes you, includes the Roman church, it includes Paul. See, you can't celebrate Easter unless you realize that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. You have nothing to celebrate if you don't see yourself in the word our. You don't have an empty tomb unless you have a bloody cross. And you don't have a bloody cross without someone delivering Jesus there. And God did not send his son to a bloody cross for no reason. He sent him to a bloody cross for our trespasses. That word trespasses is an interesting word. The King James uses the word offenses. If you have an NIV translation, it uses the word sins. New American Standard uses the word transgressions. So just kind of put all of those words together. They're giving you the sense of what this Greek word means. It means to trip and fall in this case, over the standard of God's law. God created all things for himself, for his own glory. He, he created the world so that we could have ultimate joy and satisfaction in him, that we could enjoy him through the things that he created. But instead, we traded his eternal glory for the lesser glory of created things. We trip and fall short of his glory every time that we do. And so God set in motion a rescue plan. He, first, he rescued a people for himself, the, the nation of Israel, and he, he gave them a law. That, that law revealed who he is, who he is not, and who they should be in relationship to him. And they tripped and fell flat on their faces over that law. In fact, we would all trip over that law. All trip over God's 
standard. We all know, even if you don't have the law, even if you never read it, you know intuitively that you are not ultimate. Just go out under a starry sky and look up and realize you are not ultimate. And yet we still act like we are, don't we? We know intuitively that there is something more than this material existence, that we are not just atoms bouncing together. And yet we act like there is nothing else. We don't think about God. We reject him. We turn away from him. We worship created things rather than the creator. That's a trespass. Your sin is not some little mistake that can just be brushed off as if it's nothing. It is a failure to satisfy the legal demands placed upon you by a holy God. It is an infinite offense against your creator deserving of eternal conscious torment in hell. And listen, I'm not just saying that to you. I'm saying it to me too. And Jesus was delivered up for our trespass. You don't get to celebrate Easter. You cannot celebrate Easter unless you believe that. There is no resurrection without the death of Jesus, and there is no death of Jesus without our trespasses. And so if you do not believe that, you have nothing to celebrate. You are still dead in your sin. You are raising a glass in celebration while the room is burning around you. And I would plead with you, open your eyes and see your salvation. The truth that we saw last week in Judges 3 and the truth that we saw on Good Friday remains without Jesus, we are guilty. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you believe God when he says that you are a sinner deserving wrath, deserving death? And you, have you put all of your faith down on the fact that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses? That is the only way you get to experience the rest of this verse who was delivered up for our trespasses, look down at verse 25 again, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Rest all your faith on God, who third, declared Jesus our Lord to be our innocence. Rest all your faith on God, who declared Jesus our Lord to be our innocence. Jesus, our Lord, was raised for our justification. So God is stating here the purpose of the re resurrection, the purpose of Easter. The innocent died for the guilty. The price was paid. The work was finished. The wrath was satisfied. But if the innocent is never vindicated, 
If he was never shown to be righteous, then we have a massive miscarriage of justice. And if he was never vindicated by the eternal judge, how do we really know that his death did what we say it did? How do we really know that it paid the price for our sin? How do we know that Jesus wasn't just another con artist or a lunatic religious leader? See, if Jesus remains in the grave, then it means that he was guilty of some sin of his own. That God did not accept his sacrifice on our behalf. And therefore, we are still dead in our sin. And he's just another one of us dying for his own sin. But God rose Jesus from the dead as a statement of his innocence, as a statement of the acceptance of his sacrifice, and he rose him for our justification. His innocence becomes our innocence. His resurrection life becomes our source of life. That's what it means for God to justify or or that Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. Justification is the decision for God to impute or to apply, to count Christ's righteousness to us. That's justification. He transfers Christ's righteous Innocent status, he clothes us in Christ's righteousness. I've heard it simply explained this way. Uh, To be justified means that God sees me just as if I never sinned. It can be an easy way to remember it. Justified just as if I never sinned. What? How can that be? That feels almost scandalous. It feels like I'm living in denial. It feels like I'm living a lie, doesn't it? But God is not merely sweeping sin under the rug. To justify is to count sinners innocent based on the innocence of Jesus, not their own record. Because Jesus was perfectly righteous. And he paid the penalty for our sin, once for all, in full. And so the penalty was already paid. And since the debt is paid, his innocence, now that he is resurrected, can be applied to us. This is the way that God can be just when the innocent was crucified and the guilty goes free. Because it was the intent all along. It was the intent all along from the time that Eve bit the fruit and before. It was the intent all along for the innocent to pay the penalty of the guilty and to be raised to life again. Back to Romans 3 that we reflected on Friday night. God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God could not overlook sin. 
He had to deal with sin, and yet he wanted in his mercy and grace to rescue a people for himself. And so God maintained his justice in justifying sinners by willingly giving over his own son, who himself willingly went to the cross, satisfied the penalty of sin, and then once the payment was made, God raised him from the dead, declaring him to be our innocence. Declaring him to be our right relationship with God. Our our relationship with God is found through him. We are united to him through faith. His death is our death. His life is our life. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in God, who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. That's such weird grammar, isn't it? So I keep messing it up. Who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Why? Why? Because he was crucified and raised for that purpose, for our justification. Now, now I want to return as we close to a, a question that I didn't answer at the beginning, but I asked. What does it mean to believe in God in such a way that God counts that belief to us as righteousness? Because a lot of people say they believe in Jesus. They say they believe in God. Kind of like someone believes in aliens or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. But what does it mean to say and to actually believe in God in this way? And the Bible is clear that belief or, or faith, which is the same original word. Don't try to make anything out of that. It's faith is belief. Belief is faith. Faith is far more than agreeing with something. Faith is far more than knowing about something. Belief, faith, trust is putting the full weight of your life down upon what God has said to be true. The best illustration I know is is this stool. Let's see if I can open it. Not sure. I'm not sure. I believe in the stool at this moment, right? Ah, John, can you give me that stool? I don't believe in that stool, right? I'm not trying to sit on that, right? The one, the Heidi one there. Yeah, yeah. The Heidi one. So. If I say that I believe in this stool, I don't believe in that stool. Even though I believe it exists, I don't believe in it, right? And and if I look at this stool and I say that I believe in this stool, I'm not just saying that I believe that it exists. That's obvious to everyone that it exists. It would be a pretty worthless statement. And I'm not saying that I believe that it could hold me theoretically, but I'm going to stay over here. If I believe in that stool, I'm putting the full weight down upon it. And I'm staying here. And I'm staying here. To believe in Jesus, to have faith in him, is to believe on him. So 
if you have a King James Version of the Bible, uh, your, your translation is going to say that believe on. It's going to say believe on, not believe in. And we don't talk that way, way anymore, but it's actually a better translation of the word. It's to put the full weight of your life down upon what God has said to be true. It's to put all your Easter eggs in that basket. And God has said that Jesus is Lord. God has said that he delivered him up for our trespasses and he raised him for our justification so that we could be declared innocent before him even when we are found guilty in our sin. God has said that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that he is the only true life. He is the only way to have a right relationship with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so to believe in Jesus is not to say, I believe about him. It's not to say, I believe in him theoretically, like it would be nice if I was really that bad a person and I needed Jesus to bail me out of some things. It's not to say, I believe that he existed and he was a good teacher. No, no, no. To say that you believe in Jesus is to put the full weight of your faith down upon him for your life. His life is your life. It's through that kind of faith in Jesus alone that we are declared innocent before God. It's not in how good you try to be. It's not about how good or bad you've been. It's in how you rely upon Jesus, our Lord, for your salvation and your life. We describe it this way at Oak Hill. Following Jesus is about living in dependence on and devotion to Jesus. Dependence on and devotion to Jesus. If he rose from the dead, he's worth a lot more than just one Sunday a year. Rest all your faith on God who declares guilty sinners innocent through the resurrection of Jesus. Do you have that kind of faith in Jesus today? Search your heart. Do you have that faith in him today that he is your only hope? You're not resting on yourself. You're not resting on other people or other things. Resting on him alone. He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead and he is Lord. And if you don't, if you search your heart and you don't have that kind of faith, then you can turn to him today. And say, Jesus, it's it's not about me. In fact, I, I bring to you all of my sin. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe that you have taken the cost of my sin and you have laid it upon yourself. And I believe that you rose from the dead. God raised you from the dead. And I believe that you are Lord. And I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do it imperfectly, but I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to ask the church for help. And I'm going to walk in humble devotion to you. And if you have come to faith in Jesus. Then what are you going to do with your new life? 
the, the rest of the book of Romans would give us a number of things that God intends for that new life. I'll just give you a few. Praise him as Lord. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Humble yourself before him. Endure suffering with joy because you know that your life is headed to a resurrection with him. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Be a part of his living body, which is the church. And actively love them with a genuine love. The resurrection gives us a whole new life, a life of freedom and joy and trust. I would love to talk to you. If, you, if you've never known that life, I would love to talk to you after the service. John, who's one of our elders, would love to talk to you. Alden, who you'll see at the end of the service, he'd love to talk to you. David, who's our worship director, would love to talk to you. Any of the others that you'd see on the stage, Melissa would love to talk to you. Melissa would love to talk to you. Katie would love to talk to you. Ashley would love to talk to you. But listen, we just want you to know Jesus. We found our life in him. Lord, I pray that you would reveal our hearts. I pray that we would not just reflect on what we've always said we believe, but rather the saving faith in Jesus that puts all of our trust in him, that rests all of our hope in him, and that lives as a result for him alone. Lord, would you reveal any heart here that has not come to that saving faith? Would you draw them, would you woo them to yourself right now by the riches of your mercy and grace toward us? And Lord, for those of us who have, for those of us for whom Easter is such a special day because of the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to celebrate with our lives. Help us to rejoice in the new life, the freedom that we have. Help us to walk in newness of life that Jesus provides. We need you, Lord. Be our identity and our joy and our freedom. We ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.